what if, what if you had to write a letter to your father? Your father's 89 years old, and he's still driving a car, and he shouldn't be. He doesn't see all that well. He's a danger to everybody on the road. He's an accident waiting to happen. Your sister has called and talked to you about this. She says, hey, I've talked to dad until I'm blue in the face, and he won't listen to me. You've got to talk to him. Well, your father lives out there in California. You're here in Indiana. You can't call, can't use the phone, because his hearing is not all that good. So you're going to have to write a letter. And in this letter, you need to say some hard things to your dad. But how are you going to say those things without being misunderstood? I mean, as you begin to write that letter, you realize he can't see the expression on your face. He can't hear the tone of your voice. So how do you make sure these words that you're putting on that piece of paper, how do you make sure those words don't come across as cold, harsh, and uncaring? How are you going to communicate with your dad in a way in which he doesn't misunderstand your heart, your intentions, your desire to help him, your desire to keep him safe? Well, that's the same kind of struggle the Apostle Paul's going through when he writes this letter we call 2 Corinthians, of all the churches that he worked with, and he worked with a lot, but this was his most challenging, this church here in Corinth. I mean, this was the church that had the most to learn, and yet this was the church that was most resistant to learning those lessons. Of all the people the Apostle Paul tried to help, uh, these were the people that were most ornery, the most unruly, the most disorderly, the most disrespectful. So how's he going to get through to them? How's he going to convince them that they need to make some changes? Well, that's why I find his testimony here in chapter 12 so fascinating. Rather than trying to impress the people there in the big city of Corinth and come across, hey, do you realize who I am, how important I am? Do you not appreciate all that I've achieved over the course of my life? Instead of boasting about his strengths and bragging about his credentials, he does the very opposite. All through this chapter, he chooses to boast about his weaknesses. Now, that's so counterintuitive. I mean, isn't it true we tend to admire the strong, not the weak? We're, we're so proud of our friends when they stand tall in the face of adversity. They don't panic. They keep their cool, even though everybody else around them is falling apart. We, we love it when people are tough and brave and they refuse to let their knees buckle, no matter how enormous that weight is they're carrying at that moment. We admire people who never let anyone or anything hurt them, who never let anyone or any, anything get in their way and keep them from reaching their goals. We admire the strong, not the weak. We never want to get to the place where we have to admit, I'm sorry, I don't have what it takes. Or at least that's what our culture tells us. That's how our culture encourages us to act. But here's the irony. Isn't it true that deep down inside you find yourself being drawn to people who are willing to be honest about themselves? Don't you find yourself being drawn to people who are willing to let down the guard and show you, hey, the truth is, I really struggle with this. Do you remember that day in class when one of the students raised his hand and said, sorry, professor, I'm completely lost. I have no idea what you're talking about. Would you please go back and try to explain that to me again? And inside yourself, you're thinking, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for asking that question because I was completely lost too. I just didn't have the courage to raise my hand because I didn't want to look stupid. But boy, am I glad to know that I'm not the only one in this class who's not getting it. I'm not the only one here who's struggling to understand that topic. Or do you remember how proud you were at night, late one night, when you get a phone call from your daughter? She's at a slumber party. She's supposed to be staying overnight at a friend's house. All the other girls in the class are there. But about 1030, you get this call. Mom, Dad, would you come and pick me up? I know all my friends are going to tease me about this, but I'm homesick. Would you come and get me? And at that moment, weren't you proud that your, your daughter was brave enough to admit that, hey, all my friends may be ready for something like this, a slumber party, but I'm not there yet. She wasn't scared to admit that right now I'm not big enough 
to handle this. That's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's the great Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived, and yet here he is freely, openly admitting, hey, there's some things just too big for me, too much, too overwhelming. If it weren't for the grace of God, I'd never make it. I don't know about you, but I, I find that to be so encouraging. If the great Apostle Paul had to lean upon God in order to make it through this life, then I should never be shy and never scared to admit, I need to lean on the Lord. So, I want us to spend some time in this scripture and just listen to Paul's testimony and see what we can learn from him. We're just going to look at three verses today, verses 7, 8, and 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This won't be on the screen, so if you've got a Bible, uh, pick it up and open it up. Look at this with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7, he says, because of these surpassingly great revelations, in verses 1 to 6, the Apostle Paul tells us about an experience that he had 14 years earlier. When one day, all of a sudden, God just took him up and gave him a tour of heaven. I mean, the Apostle Paul got a chance to see what paradise is really like. And it was so amazing, so incredible. Words could not begin to describe what he was seeing and experiencing. You can't imagine how glorious this place is. But after having that experience, to make sure he keeps his feet in the ground, to keep him humble, to make sure this experience doesn't go to his head and causes him to become proud and conceited, then right after that experience, God allows something painful and humiliating to happen to Paul. So Paul says, because of this marvelous experience, uh, because of these surpassingly great revelations about heaven that was given to me, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was also given a thorn in my flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, lest you think we're talking about something minor here, and we're not. You know, I hear that word thorn, and I'm thinking about the thorns in a rose bush, so I'm thinking about something small and annoying. Something may hurt you for a while, but it's not going to ruin your whole day. But that's not what we're talking about. When the Bible here uses this word thorn, it's a word that also back in the first century, it was used to talk about a large metal stake that's driven deep into the ground that helps hold the tent in place. Or sometimes the same word was translated spear, you know, a weapon that's driven deep in the flesh that hurts so bad it brings you down to your knees. Sometimes it just lays you out on the ground and you're just left lying there feeling totally helpless. That's the kind of experience we're talking about. Now, Paul doesn't go into a lot of details. He doesn't give specifics. What exactly does he mean by the thorn in the flesh? But this much we do know. Whatever it was, it was something debilitating, it was something humiliating, and Paul did not like it at all. And Paul has been suffering this way for the past 14 years. So watch his reaction, verse 8. How does he respond to this? Verse 8, Paul says three times, keep in mind Paul is a Jewish man, and sometimes when they say three times, they mean literally one, two, three, just three. But sometimes when they use this expression three times, what they really mean is constantly, again and again, on numerous occasions, I came to God and I pleaded with him, please take the thorn away. I love the honesty. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's suffering. He doesn't like this at all. So he comes to God and pleads with him, please take the pain away, which means what for us? Which means it's okay for us to do the same thing. When somebody's sick, we should pray for them to be healed. When somebody's fighting an addiction, we should pray for their deliverance. When somebody's been wounded by a terrible experience in life, then we need to pray for their recovery. 
In other words, when I get sick and I go to the hospital and you come by to visit me, you come by to pray for me, don't pray. Well, God, it's obvious. Brother David, there he is, flat on his back in a hospital bed. It's obvious what your plan is for him right now. You want him to suffer. So God, help him to suffer well. Don't pray that. No, when you come and pray for me, pray for me to get well. Pray for my strength to be restored. Yes, I want to learn everything I'm supposed to learn as I'm going through that trial. And yes, I want Christ to be magnified and glorified in my sufferings. But before you give up on me, give God a chance to heal. When somebody is sick, when somebody is suffering, we should be bold and passionate that God would deliver them because sometimes God will take the thorn away. So just like Paul here in verse 8, we should never hesitate to ask for that. But sometimes, sometimes God doesn't take the thorn away. And then what do we do? Well, look at what Paul learned. Jesus talks to him. And here's what Jesus said to Paul. Verse 9, Jesus said to Paul, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, what makes these words of Jesus so encouraging is because Jesus himself is the perfect example of this. Remember what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53? It says, he, Jesus, he was wounded for the wrong we did. And the punishment that's going to make everything right, the punishment that makes us well again, it was put on him. So we are healed because of his wounds. The word wounded that is used in this verse is a word that literally means bruises. Talking about the black and blue marks that are all over your skin that are created by the broken blood vessels. And the word heal that is used here in this verse literally means to mend, to repair, to be made whole. So Isaiah is telling us we're made whole because he was broken. Because of his wounds, we have been saved. Well, you go to the other side of Scripture. You go clear to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, and we learn the same thing again. Here's the apostle John. One day he's able to have this revelation. He, he says, and I saw a lamb standing. He's talking about Jesus I saw a lamb standing there as though it were slain. Here is Jesus standing in heaven. And John said, I can still see the scars from what he suffered on the cross. Those scars are not some kind of deformity, something we should be ashamed of. Those scars didn't come about because of some kind of accident or some kind of defeat. No, those scars are our hope. Those are our salvation. That's why we come here every Sunday morning. We come to celebrate those scars because those scars are the most beautiful scars in all the world. Because of his scars, we have been redeemed. In other words, on the cross, Jesus became poor so we might become rich. He became weak so that we might become strong. There on the cross with those large metal spikes driven deep into his flesh, Jesus was broken and scarred so we might become whole. God's power made perfect through the weakness of Jesus on a cross. And the God that displayed his grace and power at the cross is the same God that wants to display his grace and his power through your weaknesses and through mine. How? How does that happen? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways this can happen. I just want to give you one example. If you've ever been a part of Alcoholics Anonymous then you know that they teach you this slogan, I can make it one day at a time. That is so important. Because if you were to tell the alcoholic, hey, don't take a drink for the next nine months, that's too much. That challenge is too big. That requirement, that responsibility, way too heavy. And it'll just collapse underneath the weight. Now, you've got to take that challenge and you've got to break it down. Hey, let's not worry about tomorrow. Don't even think about it. Let's just focus on today. 
this day. Don't take a drink. And all of a sudden, you've given this alcoholic some hope. I can make it one day at a time. Well, that thinking, that philosophy, that's nothing new. That's all over the pages of God's Word. For example, 2,700 years ago in the book of Isaiah, God says this, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. And then in that very same verse, the Bible tells us three different ways God does that. Sometimes he chooses to give us the strength to soar on wings like eagle, meaning sometimes instantly, dramatically, he just takes the thorn away. He lifts us up. So we rise above the struggle, and we won't be bothered by that problem ever again. It's wonderful, glorious. But secondly, sometimes that's not the help that is appropriate to the situation. Sometimes God chooses, Isaiah says, God chooses to give us the strength to run and not grow weary. Sometimes God wants us to go through that trial, to go through that struggle because of what we're going to learn from it and because of how we're going to grow because of it. So to help us as we're going through that trial, he gives us a strength to run and not grow weary. That is, every day he gives us strength, energy, adrenaline to face the challenge and to fight the battle until one day at last we win, we conquer, and the problem is solved, and once again the thorn disappears. But then there's a third way that God provides his strength. Sometimes God just gives us a strength to walk and not faint, just to keep putting one foot in front of the other because God recognizes sometimes the challenge that we're facing it's constant it's not going to go away every morning when you get out of bed it's still going to be there like caring for a father with Alzheimer's or helping a child with Down syndrome so running flying those things are not going to help in a situation like that so what God does is he, he steps into that situation and he says, let's make sure this doesn't get overwhelming. I mean, you know, the next day and the day after that and the day after that, you're going to have to fight this or deal with the same thing again and again. But don't even think about that. Let's just focus on today. And today, know this, you're not going to go through this alone. God is with you. And as God is with you, he will give you the strength to walk and not faint. Roy Smith explains it like this. He says when he was a little boy, he was scared to death of the dark. And one night, his father asked him to go out to the barn and get some tools. Well, the barn was set off quite a ways from the house. And that night, everything was just pitch black. Uh, Roy said you could barely see your hand in front of your face. And the thought of having, going to all, having to go all the way out there to the barn and then from the barn come back to the house, that just unnerved him. He was terrified. And Roy says, a little boy, I told my dad, I said, Dad, I, I know I, I sh it, this shouldn't be true of me, but it is. I'm scared to death of the dark. I can't do this. And he says, the wonderful thing was this. His father didn't laugh at him or mock him or say, oh, come on, be a man, grow up. A kid your age, you shouldn't be scared of things like that anymore. He didn't do that. Instead, he said, he, he knelt down beside me, put his arm around me. He says, that's okay, Roy. Everybody's scared of something. Let me see what I can do to help you. So his father grabbed a lantern. He put it in Roy's hands. He said, Roy, hold up the lantern and tell me what you see. And so in the midst of that darkness, they're standing right outside the house. In the midst of the darkness, Roy holds up the lantern. He says, Dad, I can't see the barn. And the father says, don't worry about that. But we'll get there eventually. Just tell me, what can you see right now? Well, Dad, I can, I can see to the mulberry tree. Great. Roy, you and me, we're going to do this together. We're going to walk from here to there, from the house to the tree. They got over to the tree. The father leans over. He says, okay, Roy, hold the lantern up again. Tell me what you see. Well, Dad, I still can't see the barn. Don't worry about that. We're going to get there. Just tell me what you can see right now from the perspective of the tree. Well, I can see over to the bushes. Great. You and me, let's walk from the tree to the bushes. 
So they got over to the bushes, and once again, the father leans over and says, Roy, hold up the lantern. What do you see? Dad, I still don't see the barn. Don't worry about that. We're getting there. Just tell me, from the bushes, what do you see? Well, I can see the hen house. Great. You and me, let's go from the bushes to the hen house. They got to the hen house. He held up the lantern. Still couldn't see the barn, but he could see the hog lot. So they went from the hen house to the hog lot. He got to the hog lot. He raised up the lantern and said, Dad, I can see the barn. Father says, great. Let's go get those tools. You see, little by little, moment by moment, step by step, his father helped him to conquer his fear. That's how God will help us. Every day, he's given us a lantern, his word. His word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Here's his word that reminds me of who he is and what he's like and what he's promised to do for me. And every day he says, okay, David, hold up the lantern. Tell me what you see. Well, God, I'm sorry. I, I don't see a whole lot right now. I, I've still got so much I need to learn. That's okay, David. We're not going to do this all at once. We're just going to take this a step at a time, a day at a time. So hold up the lantern and tell me what you see. Well, well God, I, I can see over to the mulberry tree. Great. For right now, for this day, you and me, let's just get from here to there. And every day, step by step, I discover again and again, his grace is sufficient for me because every day he helps me to walk and not faint. Listen, if you're going to boast, don't boast about yourself. That doesn't help me at all. If you want to boast, boast about the Lord and what he can do for us because the Bible says here, his power is made perfect through your weaknesses and through mine. Let's pray. God, give us the courage to see and recognize the truth about ourselves, that we are weak. But help us to see that though we're weak, you're strong. And God, help us to see the truth that we are flawed and broken and that only you can make us whole again. So God, today, give us the courage to trust, to lean on you, to seek your help. And God, today, renew our strength. Give us the help that is appropriate to each one of our situations. And God, we're going to trust you for that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, here's an opportunity for us to give thanks. Here's an opportunity to boast about the Lord and celebrate the great things that he has done for us. The Apostle Paul put it like this. He said, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we eat the bread that reminds us of his body. We drink the cup that reminds us of the blood he shed, how he laid his life down for us. And he did that so we could live forever with him. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. And thank you, God, for our salvation. And we thank you in Jesus' name.